Um, I want to continue today with David. Now, I've got to give you a little bit of background here, and my guess is that most of you have not heard the story I'm going to share with you about David, and this is one of the reasons, this particular story is one of the reasons I wanted to do this series in the first place, because there is so much of David's life that we, quite honestly, never concern ourselves with. Uh, We're very focused on David's calling and anointing to be king. We're very focused on uh, David when he becomes king, running from Saul. We are very aware of David's story uh, with Goliath. We are also very aware of David's falling with Bathsheba. But there is so much in his life that we miss when those are the only stories we're concerned with. And when we look at the difference between Saul, who was the first king of Israel, and David, who would be his successor, we see two men who are fatally flawed. But at the same time, one of those men are said to have been a man after God's own heart. So how do we look at a man who is flawed and understand that he still has the heart of God within him? And what does that mean for you and I whenever we are flawed that we can still have a heart pattern after God as well? Now, in this part of Israel's history, one thing I want you to know is if you look back from the very beginning in Genesis... Moving forward, we have the time in Genesis where it's Adam and Eve in the garden, and then sin enters into the garden, and Adam and Eve are kicked out. And then we begin to see the growing of humanity in the world, and we have all kinds of issues that arise immediately. There's all kinds of conflict between people, and eventually they begin to organize and form and to have leaders that push them in the right direction. Then we have a period that they are... Uh, moving to Egypt. Now, when we studied through Joseph, you heard a lot about that. And in in a great famine that entered into the land, uh, this is where Joseph uh, really helped the entire nation of Israel survive when he was sold into slavery, eventually becomes really the, the head over all of Israel under the Pharaoh. And he rescues all of Israel. They move to Egypt, and over a series of generations, they fall into slavery, and they are mistreated, and they cry out to God. God rescues them through Moses. Now, at this point, they are becoming a nation. They have come out of Egypt, and God says, I'm going to give you a promised land. Now, this promise of the promised land is going to have some significance in our story today because what's interesting is that all through the Old Testament and what we also find in our own lives is that when we faithfully follow God, good things happen. And when we do not follow God, good things don't tend to continue to happen. Now, in the life of Israel, as they began to move in and conquer the promised land, what happens is some move in and immediately conquer the areas that God has promised them. But others question and doubt that God is going to make them victorious. And there are pieces at this point when David is running from Saul, Saul is king, there are pieces of the nation that God said, this is your promised land that they have yet to been able to conquer themselves. And so there are actually areas within Judah that are occupied and they are are overseen by other nations. Now, that is kind of where the nation is. And as they are entering into all kinds of conflict and Saul is scared that he's going to lose his kingship, which God has already told him he has lost, he's chasing after David, war in Israel is escalating. The Philistines know that there is now this conflict between David and Saul. Saul is taking hundreds and sometimes thousands of men to go chase after David. And when you're the king and you take thousands of people out of your capital city, what do you think the other neighboring nations think about? Hey, the king's gone. We can come in. We can take this place over. And what we actually see through history is that in many of the places that Saul went chasing after David, the capital city came under attack. Now, that we're in one of those such occasions, and while everything I'm going to share with you today is happening, at home, Jerusalem is under siege by the Philistines. Now, that's going to be important by the end of today. But that's where I wanted you to be 
for now as we start. In 1 Samuel chapter 27, we are literally going to jump through the next three chapters. We're not reading all three chapters, but I want you to see a few things in this story. Verse, uh, chapter 27, verse 1. David, at this point, you'll remember he has fled to a cave. All these oppressed, hurting people have come to him for help. He has taken on his role as a leader. They have gone out and they have rescued some oppressed people um, through, uh, through this new army and his mighty men that he now has. And David is still running from Saul. He is still scared of what Saul is going to do. This is where we pick up um, our story, verse 1. It says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines, their enemy. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and his 600 men who were with him. Now that does not count women and children. That's just the fighting men that were with him. His 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Now, David has been running now for a good period of his adult life. Saul has been trying to track him down. He's tried to kill him time and time again. And David comes up with this idea that if I go to Gath, if I go into the land of my enemies outside the borders of Israel, Saul will no longer be worried about me. In fact, he'll stop searching for me because for one, he's not going to go into their lands. And two, he's not worried about me trying to overtake his authority because I'll be gone. I won't even be in Israel. I can't usurp the king's authority if I'm not even there. And at this point, his plan works. Now, David is feeling very good at this point. Right now, he now has a lot of people with him. He has the spoils of the the battle that he has just won. And he is feeling like, I am now at a place where I can enjoy life and I can relax. But David is also aware of their history, of the history of Israel that I just shared with you. He's also aware that God has called him to be the leader of the Israel nation. And so he has a job to do. And so as he's in Gath, I want you to keep in mind, this is basically a warring party that has come into Philistine land. He has come into the nation of Gath. And when you come into a nation with 600 fighting men, you probably have at least a couple of thousand people with you. If you just usher in a warring nation, a couple of thousand people into the capital city, things do not look healthy to all those who are already living there. And so at this point, what we find in the story, and if you read down through the rest of the story, you will see how God is going to even use David in this time where he thinks that he is safe and he is gone. If you read in these next few verses, David is going to suggest to King Achish, you know what, it doesn't make sense for thousands of us to live in your capital city. Send us out to this little town where we can go and make our own. It was a town called Ziklag. Now, if you're a student of history, you will know that Ziklag is part of the promised land within the bounds of Judah that is still being held by the Philistines. And amazingly enough, King Achish said, that sounds like a good plan. I am going to give you Ziklag. And so David and all of the people with him go and settle into this area. So this is a town that literally... For hundreds of years, they have tried to overtake, and they had never been able to win this town back. God will often use your hardships to allow you to accomplish his purposes in unique ways. So he has now overtaken Ziklag. He has now reclaimed a portion of the promised land, not through battle, but just by talking with the king. Scripture tells us that he's there for about 16 months before the next events are about to happen. One thing I want you to know, as we have seen over and over again in David's life, is that God will often cause you discomfort to accomplish the things that you will not allow him to accomplish when you are comfortable. 
Now, I want you to let that sink in. My guess is all of us in this room, we know what discomfort feels like. Anyone? Some of you are thinking, I'm, I'm uncomfortable right now. I'm with you. I feel it. But we sometimes know discomfort in different ways. It's one thing when it's a little warm in the room. It's a completely other thing when you're suffering and you're not sure you're going to make it through life. There are times that we can enter discomfort when we fear that everything's going to fall apart and what we had hoped for our future is never going to happen. There's discomfort that we can experience in pain when health fails or when we get older and we don't work the way we used to. There's discomfort when we go to work and we've worked at this place for many, many years and all of a sudden they tell us we're no longer working there and we've got to find a new job. There's discomfort whenever we have invested into some kind of retirement plan and we find out that the bosses mismanaged the retirement plan and now it's all gone and now you're reaching retirement and you have nothing, which is what has been happening for many people in our nation over the last few decades. There's lots of different ways of discomfort. There's discomfort in other parts of the world when they struggle with meeting together just like this and a group of armed people are waiting to come in and take them all out. There's all kinds of discomfort in the world and all they wanted to do was to worship Christ together. There's all kinds of discomfort. And one of the things as Christians that we struggle with, and, and sometimes we don't struggle with it as much as the people that are not Christians that are our friends, and they ask us these questions. If God loves you and if God loves me, why does he allow me to be uncomfortable? Why does he allow discomfort? Why does he allow me to struggle at days with my emotions and I can't really understand why I feel depressed or, or despairing even when my circumstances don't warrant that? I don't understand why I'm at odds with my spouse or my kids even though we love each other and we're trying our very best to be a healthy family and yet our family's just not healthy. Why does God allow that? Doesn't he know we love him and we want to serve him? Why isn't he making us more comfortable together And what we find over and over again in David's life, which is true for my life and your life as well, is that God will allow us to be uncomfortable because it is in those moments of discomfort that we allow him to work in ways that we don't when everything's just going great. The only way you and I grow is whenever we're uncomfortable. We rarely grow when things are going well. When things are going well, we rest in the fact that things are going well. And it's an amazing thing what begins to happen in the heart of a person when everything's falling into place. You move from hope to anxiety very quickly. The anxiety being, I'm going to lose this place of comfort I have attained. It's amazing how many people have things going so well, and yet their lives are overtaken with fear that they're going to lose this thing. See, we do not press forward when we are comfortable. We try to hold on to what we have. And God brings that discomfort in. And for David, having him run from Saul, one of the great things that has happened is all of these hurting, oppressed people realize that we have a champion And what we see here is that God is actually delivering part of the promised land through his running from him. The next few verses, I'm not going to read them, but it's really, it's one of the things that I love about this story. David actually tells King Achish, go back and read it. Don't trust me. Go back and read it. He tells King Achish, I'm going to fight with you. I'm not against you. I'm going to be with you. And so these warring parties that are trying to fight against your people, I'll go take care of them for you out of appreciation for letting us stay in your land and having Ziklag and, and giving us you know, a safe place away from Saul. Now, an interesting thing happens. David begins to raid not the Israelites who are fighting the Philistines. He begins to take one spot after the other of these little pieces that were never conquered by Israel. They did not trust God that he would actually give them, and so they've remained in Philistine control. And David goes in wars against each one, and Scripture says he kills everyone in that area. So no one can go back and report to the king what they're doing. In this process, four different areas within Judah that are controlled by Philistine now fall under Israelite control. It's an amazing thing that he does. And he keeps going back to the king saying, man, I'm doing it, king. I'm getting this done. And the king knows no better. And so David begins to fulfill the promise that no one else was able to fulfill in overtaking the land that was given to him. 
David's life is a life of struggle at this point. Maybe some of you feel that your life is a life of struggle or has been or will be at some point. But I want you to know that God can accomplish greater things in the lives of those who follow him than those who rely on their own power and wealth. The reason I use the words power and wealth, and some of you are thinking, I don't have power or wealth. But you have something. And here we have Saul that has everything. Saul has power. Saul has wealth. Saul has an army. Saul is the king. This is his rightful place to go liberate these towns. But he never does it. Instead, David, who has nothing at this point, is simply following God faithfully, and God is rewarding him with these great feats. If you're sitting here thinking, I don't have a lot to offer, I don't have a lot of money, I don't have a lot of influence, I I don't really want to get up and speak to people on, on a stage or sing, I don't really have the ability to go and talk to my neighbors the way that I I know other people do. I don't really have a whole lot to offer. The interesting thing is, is God never wanted you to offer what you already had. What he says is that his power is made perfect in what? Weakness. So it is those who are following God that God accomplishes the most through, not those who feel that they can do it on their own. Let's pick up the story again in verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the Jeremiahites, against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. In other words, they're going, they'll tell on us if, they're, if we leave anyone alive. Such was this custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines, that whole 16 months. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. The king is totally bought in to what David is doing. Now, as time passes, the commanders of the Philistine army are going to get nervous about David. They're going to say things to the king like, you know what, this guy, he is the darling of the Israelite nation. They are singing songs about him. Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his ten thousands. Those ten thousands are us, our people, Philistines. We should not continue to allow him to travel with us. At this point, whenever the Philistine army would go out, David and his men would be right there with the king. And the commanders of the king's army said he should no longer go with us. And instead, this is when they head out and they begin to fight against Saul. And David is off doing his raids and is about to experience the greatest failure in his life. Now, why I think this story is interesting is because we are often not aware of the failures that David has accomplished other than what he has done with Bathsheba and her husband. But this is one of the failures where David almost loses his influence among all of the Israelite people. Chapter 30, verse 1. says, Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, so they're coming back home, the Amalekites, another warring group, had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, his home, where the family of all of his fighting men live where his wives are, where his sheep and oxen and all the things that they have, everything is in Ziklag, and the Amalekites come and raid it. It says, They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people were with him, raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's out on this warring raid, 
and everyone that they care about is taken captive. Everything that makes Ziklag their home is burned or stolen. It is all gone. David, the great tactician that he was, totally screwed up and had not paid attention to what was going on around the borders. And unfortunately for David, it's going to get worse. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. Listen to what it says. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But listen to what David does. But David strengthened himself, and the Lord is God. What we can learn from David, a man after God's own heart, is that even the greatest people of God mess up. Even the greatest men and women of God mess up. If any of you have ever messed up, and I know it probably ever, hasn't ever happened to you, but if it ever does, you can know you are in good company. Now, the reason I want to share this story is not so much that this happens, because this is a very difficult time for David. These are the people that have come and trusted him. He loves them. They love him. But they feel totally betrayed by the one who is leading them, so much so that they want to kill him. They don't want him to be their leader anymore. And his own people want him dead. In addition, he's got to go rescue his own wives. He's hurting because he's missing his own wives. As we look at verse 7, we find how David handles this. And this is really what I want you to get today. Verse 7, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, (coughs) excuse me, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. There are three things that David does here. Isn't that convenient? Because it's always three in a sermon. It's never four or six or two. It's always three. It just so happens there's three today. The first thing David does is he summons the priest and David worships. There is no more heartfelt worship than the worship of someone whose heart is broken. When we choose to worship, when we choose to give God glory, when we choose to make him the center of our world, of our attention, when we make him the center of our lives, especially in the moments that we're hurting, there is no more purest worship than in those moments to say, in the middle of my despair, I worship you. What often happens, and the reason that so many people struggle when they go through times of despair, is they fail to worship. Because rather than seeing God for how great He is in those moments, we often blame Him. It's God's fault. At very least, He's complicit because He let it happen. And David could very easily have said, God, what are we doing here? I'm doing, look at all this stuff I'm doing for you. I'm going out and I'm rescuing these lands and I'm fulfilling your promise and I'm doing the things that no one else has been able to do. By the way, your anointed king is still chasing me, trying to kill me. Why are you letting this happen? And yet David consistently comes back and worships God. There is a place within our lives that humility must reside if we are going to look at our lives and recognize that we have an opportunity to serve the living God and we do not compare with him. And yet it is so easy to look at our circumstances and our failures, our moments of despair, and to blame God as if he owes us an explanation. David does not do that. David worships. The second thing he does is what I believe is one of the greatest needs in Christians' lives today. David sought the Lord. Now, when I say I think it's one of the greatest needs... One, one thing we know, statistically speaking, that the amount of time the average person who says they're a Christian spends time in prayer is, is minuscule or completely absent. The majority of people that attend church on a regular basis do not pray at all. 
The next largest number only pray a few short minutes occasionally. And yet what people who follow God have learned through time and time again, through experiences with him, is that unless you are seeking the Lord, an amazing thing happens. You never hear from the Lord. And it is when we never hear from the Lord that we become frustrated and we decide to give up. David sought the Lord. He literally began to pray through the priest, should I, go, should I go after these folks? I mean, should I go and try to avenge them? Now, David's not asking, is it the right thing to do? Like, it's not really, you know, it's not really polite to go to war with someone who's just stolen your wife. I mean, that's not really polite. Should I, should I? That's not what David's asking. David's asking, are you with me so that we'll win? And when he goes, he hears from the Lord which is what so many of us want to do with many of our prayers. God, I just want to know what the answer is. I just want to know what you want me to do. I just want to know how I'm supposed to act here. I just want to know because I don't know. It begins with seeking the Lord. And David sought the Lord. The third thing is where many of us also miss the boat. And after he heard from the Lord, David acted. Now, this is one of the reasons I believe that so many Christians never overcome their struggles. They know how they should act. They know what God would want them to do. But whether it's insecurity, whether it's a lack of courage, whether it's not believing God is actually going to do something in their lives, they do not act see this over and over again in people who are struggling with overcoming addiction. I know what needs to happen, but the thought of acting is so painful. I don't think I can do it. There's so many marriages that are struggling that if we would just do what we know is the right thing to do, it would revolutionize our relationship. I know I need to go apologize, but I can't remember the last time they apologized to me. It it doesn't matter. God wants you to act. Act. There's so many places where God is just waiting, not for him to do something, but for us to do something so that he can come alongside of us and empower that action. David acted. Are you in a place in your life where you are asking for God to do something and he has given you instructions and what you are, how you are supposed to act, but you are still waiting on him. You know, when I tell my kids I want them to do something, it's an amazing thing. I expect them to do it. Amen? Said some parents in the room. If I ask my kids to do something and they don't do it, And then they instead come and say, well, Dad, I was waiting for you to come and tell me when you wanted me to do it. That's not The next conversation is not as fun as the first one. I'll tell you that. But for many of us, that's how we live our lives. We know the right way to act. We just don't do it. For all of us, we are going to try our hardest not to fail. Failure is something that strikes us at our core. It reduces our confidence. It takes our security and makes us insecure. We're afraid for people to find out we failed, and so we hide our failures. We don't admit them. That's one of the reasons that we aren't publicly repentant of some of our actions, because most people don't even know about it. Why in the world would I let them know that I have failed? And that's one of the reasons people stay entrapped by their past sins. And they let it have control over them and put them in a prison because they're scared to death that other people will know they screwed up. What I love about the apostles in the New Testament is that for, for almost everyone, we see their screw-ups. That's one of the things I love about David. We see his screw-ups. So many of us are trying not to fail. We're scared to death something's going to fall apart. We won't even try for something better because we don't even believe that we'll ever be able to get there. And so we just live where we are rather than trying for something better. 
the greatest among us do not keep from failing, but the greatest among us know how to deal with failure that will inevitably come. The greatest among us don't avoid failure, but they know how to deal with it when it is going to come. David failed time and time again, and what we see with David is that he knew what to do. He always went back to this same process to worship, to seek the Lord, and to act. If you need something to walk out of here to revolutionize the way you walk with Christ, walk out with this. Worship the Lord, seek Him, and then act. And if you're unsure of how to act, spend more time in worshiping and seeking Him. And He will eventually show you how to act. And as you begin to see His work within yours, as you begin to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will become not only addicted to seeing Him at work, you will begin to trust Him and you will worship Him more readily. You will seek Him repetitively, even when nothing's going wrong at the moment, and you will want to act because it is in those moments of acting that God shows up and we experience a fullness of life most people miss. Most of us try not to fail, but the greatest know how to deal with failure when it happens. One of the verses you're going to hear appear several times in the next few months. Over this next year, we are going to be focused around Micah 6 8. Some of you may or may not know this verse. It's one of the most clear verses on how do we live within this world that we're in. Matthew 6 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, I believe this this was David's heart, even though David messed up a lot. I believe that can be your heart even if you mess up a lot. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This is an incredible opportunity to live within this world in such a way that demonstrates what it means to be a disciple of Christ. In the next part of the story, I'm not going to read the next few verses, but in the next part of this story, David and his men, they begin to act. They go out and they charge. They don't know where the Amalekites are. And they just so happen, just so happen to stumble upon an Amalekite who was with the warring party who had been left for dead. He got sick and the rest of the group left. And here comes David with all of his people and they come upon him and basically say, where are your buddies? Now, if you are the one sick Amalekite, you are going to do whatever they ask of you. And David says, where is everybody? And this particular man takes David directly to not only where they are, but where all of their families are. It's an amazing thing that happens. Where, did he just show up? I found so many times the things that happen to be happy coincidences are often the way God works to bring about his plan. Verse 9, David set out and the 600 men who were with them, and they came to the brook Besser, where those who were left behind stayed. David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook. In this story, David and his men are successful. They kill all the Amalekites. They rescue all of their families. They get not only all of their spoils back, but the spoils of the Amalekites themselves, and the day is saved, and they go back. At the same time, all of this is going on, as I told you before. Saul, whenever he would chase David, the Philistines began to time their raids on Jerusalem at the same time. And there is a great battle of Philistines that are fighting against Saul. And in this time is going to end David running from Saul because in the battle, all of Saul's sons, including Jonathan, are killed. And the story says that the archers found Saul and he is wounded. And he's afraid that the Philistines are going to catch him and do terrible things to him. And so he asked his armor bearer to take his life, take my sword and take my life. And the armor bearer says, oh, I cannot do that. 
And so this is the place in the story where Saul takes his sword and he falls on it himself and kills himself. Saul is gone. This is the end of Saul and his family. All this is going on at the same time David is rescuing his family. It's amazing how God works. Different things that you have no idea of what's going on. And what David has done to this point has had time and time again to end this problem, and he consistently followed God with integrity through it all. He was in the cave, and he didn't kill him when he could have. He was in his bedroom of his tent. He could have killed him, and he didn't. He consistently said, I will never hurt you. And this is the end to which Saul comes to and the rest of his family. God is working in all of your struggles And the reason he's working in those is because he's encouraging you to trust him. In the moments that you see a glimpse of what God has done when you are struggling, worship and thank him for that. He is encouraging you to trust him. I would encourage you that at this point, David's problems do not end, although they significantly decrease. At this point, I would encourage you in these three things, and then I want to just share with you what he wrote which is Psalm 18, his, what he wrote after all of these things happened. Because much of what we read in 1 Samuel and is, uh, is really the details, but Psalms really tells us where David's heart is. So as we look at his three things, David worshiped, David sought the Lord, and David acted, I would encourage you to do these three things. Worship and remember that God is God and you are not. Do you know that is what worship is? I am very tempted to be my own God. I mean, I never have a problem knowing what I want to do for myself. I don't know about you. I never question. If Deidre and I are going out to eat, we may go for 10 minutes. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? But when I'm by myself, I don't have that problem. I know exactly where I want to go. I have no problem being in charge of my destiny. I know how I want things to go. I know how I want this sermon to go and how I want you to respond. Now, unfortunately, you have not made me Lord of your life, and so I can't make, ensure that that's how it goes. But I can be the God of my own life. Worship is the moments that are strung together throughout our day every day of our lives where we recognize God is God and I am not. The reason we sing songs of praise is because it reminds us of how good He is. When most of us are tempted to think about how good we are, now I recognize there are some that struggle to find anything good about themselves, but most people have no problem recognizing the good things in their lives and the bad things in everyone else's. Worship reminds us that God is God and we are not. And once we remember that God is God and I am not, then I take my trust off of myself and I give it to him, which moves me to action in many ways I would never have acted without him. Because many of the times that God moves me to action, it is to move in ways that is not beneficial for me, but is beneficial for someone else. And I move in those ways because God is God and I am not. And as much as I want everything I do to benefit me personally, God wants me to be his servant to help others. Now, I would love to say that's all I ever do. I mean, literally, from the time I get up to I go to bed, God just uses me to help others. That Wouldn't that be a nice testimony? And it'd be nice if you had a pastor like that, but you don't. But because I worship him many more times than I would have, That is what God is able to do through me. Worship reminds us that he is God and we are not. It puts us in that place of humility, that place where we can seek him out because he is something to be sought, not that he needs to seek us out. I would also encourage you to seek him and listen for his voice. I have found time and time again that I hear his voice so very clearly whenever I'm reading his word. And many times when I'm praying and asking God for clarity and something, often his word comes to mind to answer my prayer. When I'm unsure how to act, many times it's clearly written in his word, if I will take the time to know it. As I shared in a a blog I wrote this week, 
whenever I'm struggling emotionally with whatever I'm going through, maybe, maybe work's not going the way I need it to go, maybe someone's cut me off and I'm mad at them, or maybe something's not happening at home that I think should be happening at home. When, in those moments, what I found when, when I began to not feel at peace and not feel like I am faithfully following God, I often just go and immerse myself in His Word, and there is a peace that overcomes me because I am seeking Him. And it is in that seeking Him that we can hear Him. And it is in hearing Him that brings much of the beauty of the life of a follower of Jesus. It is not that we come to church. It is not that we come and sit in these services. It is not that you endure me for the amount of time that I'm speaking so you can then go do something else. I know that's just a highlight of your week. But that's not the most wonderful thing about being a Christian. Amen. It is walking with him and hearing from him and knowing he is walking with us. Seek him and listen for his voice. I, I can tell you with certainty that if the only time you seek him are in crisis, you often not hear his voice in crisis. But if you are seeking him consistently, you will hear him both in crisis and out of it. It's how we develop the ability to listen to him, to seek him. And finally, and this is what James teaches us, act on his instructions. Don't be hearers only, but be doers. And so what I would encourage you to be doers, is there something in your life right now that you know you need to be doing that you're not? You're praying that God will handle something. God will make this miraculously disappear or God will miraculously change whatever's happening in your life. And yet you still haven't followed through with what he has told you to do. Maybe it's something you read in scripture. Maybe you're struggling with despair. Maybe you're struggling with depression. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety and you're not spending time in God's word. Maybe you're struggling seeing God as the everything within your life, but you're not spending time worshiping, worshiping him regularly. Maybe you're struggling financially and you just can't make ends meet no matter how much money you make. And yet you've never come to the place to say all that I have is God's and I need to do with my finances as God has instructed me. Maybe there's something that you know. And if there is, I would encourage you, do not wait. Act. And in the things that you don't know yet, God will reveal them. But maybe right now you need to act on his instructions. David was said to be a man after God's own heart, not a man after God's own actions. So much of the ways that David acted were a result of his heart. And as I said before, if you really want to get to David's heart, you cannot just stay in the details of how he lived his life. You have to get into the Psalms. And so this is, what I want, this is what I want to end with today. This is the psalm that David wrote. It's Psalm 18. This is a psalm that David wrote right after David dies. Right after all of this that has happened with this warring party and he has rescued his family. He's finally come to a place where he's at peace, at least with this part of his life. All that he's experienced is over. This is how David responds to God right after Saul dies. If I can, let me see if I can read it. My eyes are getting old. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the, the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. 
He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Now, let me just say none of that actually happened. But that's how he sees God coming to avenge him. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fires, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Listen, the humility we see throughout David's life, save some instances, is enormous. It's enormous. God, David never considered himself an equal to anyone. And so we see just in Micah what the Lord requires from us. Humbly walk with our God. Verse 20, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to my, the cleanness of my hands he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tor- tor- excuse me, tortuous. For if you have a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For, excuse me, you save a humble people. But the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength. And made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set, my, set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets." You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives. Some of you may recognize this portion of the psalm. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. He closes this psalm with this. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever in the moments of his action david worshiped again he thanked god for what god had done and praised him let me encourage you wherever you are these three things are three things that will revolutionize your faith and your life if you will live in them fully every single day worship him Seek him and then act as he speaks to you. Those three things are so simple. But please don't let them just 
fly in one ear and out the other. Living these three things will change your life. It will change our church. It will change our community. And it will change the world as we do this together. Now, next week, next week we're going to pick up on a more well-known story with David. And as much as we'd like to say everything is peachy for him from this point forward, it's not. But here's a spoiler. Throughout them all, David doesn't change. You're going to see this type of behavior from him time and time again. Wherever you are in your life today, I want to encourage you that God wants to speak to you. He wants to hear from you. God is not someone who's running to be elusive. He wants you to find him. He's waiting for you to seek him. God is not somehow stronger because we worship him, but we are stronger because we recognize who he is. So I want to encourage you that as you worship in this last song, as we take our offering, I want you to think through how can you worship him this week? In what ways do you need to seek him? In what ways do you need to act on what he's already shown you? And I'm telling you, no matter where you are in life, you will see wonderful things ahead. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for the story of David and that we have so much of his story to remind us that you are not calling us to be perfect because that is impossible, but instead you are calling us to have faith in you. I pray that you will help each of us, those especially who are struggling today, to be able to reach out and to to worship freely and wholly and to recognize how good a God you are, that you have given your son on the cross so that we could have a relationship with you forever. Father, I pray that you would be at work in the lives that are in this room right now and for the rest of their lives, that they can know that you are not only there, but you are empowering them and that you are active and that you will walk with them. I pray for those that are, that are struggling with despair, depression, with anxiety, with fear that these things are not true and that they somehow don't measure up enough for you to want to walk with them. But God, I know that your heart is for those who are hurting. Your heart is for those who are oppressed. And that should be who our heart is for as well. I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to love those next to us and that we can receive your love as well. I thank you that you have given us your son. Help us to walk faithfully in knowing your salvation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.